I wanted to add um, a little bit of detail to a couple of announcements. Um, that ministry team this Saturday, April 22nd at 9.30, is going to be uh, the third in a series of training we've been doing. And this one's on evangelism and how prophetic ministry and healing um, are an essential part of how you can help people meet Jesus. So you, uh, anyone on the teams that wants to come, please come. Anyone that's just interested in that, please come. And um, where's Travis Newton? Is he still in here? He's outside. There he is. Travis is going to do the training. He's um, been doing this kind of evangelism for many, many years, and uh, it's, it's really going to be a great time. So that will be Saturday morning at 930, and we will feed you. So if you uh, don't want to come but you're hungry, just come anyway. So, Also, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, about Steve Witt. How many of you are familiar with John Arnott and what went on in Toronto and continues to this day? Wave at me if you're familiar with that out, outpouring of the Spirit that was really historic. Well, Steve Witt was a big part of that. He currently pastors a church in Cleveland, Ohio. It's the uh, Bethel Cleveland Church, which is directly connected with Bill Johnson's Bethel Church in um, Redding, California. And Steve is, uh, he's really a remarkable guy. We have been friends for probably 25 years, and uh, he's a church planner. Um, he combines humor, biblical truth, and creative activ- activations to mobilize the church in a number of different different ways. But he's very, very much a prophetic person, very, in- uh, very insightful. And we're going to have a great worship band here Thursday night, and then Steve's going to minister, and um, who knows what might happen. Our goal is for people to get to know the Lord better and let the Lord really touch their lives. So come, bring uh, bring your friends, and we are going to have some children's ministry, but I think it's just for the for the infants because we'd be happy for the kids to be in here and participate with us. So it's going to be fun, and he's uh, he's just uh, he's a tremendous guy. He has um, sort of very interesting note. He's had terminal cancer twice, which is sort of a oxymoron, isn't it? Meaning, uh, how can you have terminal cancer and live through it? Well, he's done it twice, and he's completely cancer-free. And he's just, you know, he's just a just such a tremendous guy. So that is this Thursday night. And it's going to be fun. So please don't get too excited about it. There we go. Got one little whoop. Was that Andy whooping? No. That Molly. Molly whooped all the way from California. I f- didn't know they whooped in California. They don't, man. They. I mean, I appreciate these Californians in the house, uh, you know, this morning. But come on, man. You got to get with it. There's not anybody. That's next, okay? Okay, all right. Here we are. I um, I've been. How many of you felt the Lord touch your heart this morning for real? You really did. I did too. I started crying a couple times, and I'm not big on that. You no, know, isn't that something? The presence of the Lord comes and he um he just sort of tunes you up a little bit, gets your uh, helps you get softer. People too people too hard in the world. Did you notice that? Anyway, I was watching that riot at Berkeley. Everybody just yelling, screaming, nasty stuff at each other. And I was thinking, I think there's a better way. And John Mark really alluded to it this morning. Um, I've had the very same understandings from the Lord that uh, that John Mark shared this morning. That um, really many times God will not give specific answers for situations and difficulties but what he does, he gave us his son. He doesn't explain suffering. He came and participated. And so it takes away the idea that he does not understand. I think when it comes right down to it, we could never understand the impact the cross had on Jesus' life. Uh, when you look at the, 
this sort of the theology of it. What is it to become sin? That can't be good. What is it to bear um, the judgment and penalty for everyone's sin in the world? And I was reading recently that there's really no longer um, a sin issue as far as God's concerned. He, he's done something about that. It's a matter of whether people will allow themselves by faith in Jesus to be reconciled to God. And the Bible says that's the ministry we have as if God were in us pleading, be reconciled because the work's been done. But until you can fully embrace by faith the work of Jesus on your behalf, on your behalf for you personally, that reconciliation, although it's free and available, does not benefit you. You have to take by faith the one solution God has given for um, our basic our basic problem. So, anyway, I someone was asking me about um, Good Friday, and you know, I think at some point we ought to have a Good Friday service. And um, they were saying, you know, the people get so to weird. They talk about how rough. You know, their Good Friday services are because they talk about what happened to Jesus. We need to know what happened to Jesus. I think there's nothing wrong with godly sorrow when you see what happened to to the one that loves us. And, um, you know, there's just so much to talk about when, when it comes to the, the essence of the gospel and what happened that Friday, uh, even that whole week. Uh, just how Jesus participated, the events surrounding it, the implications is just, I'm sure, whole um, volumes can be written about just about that three-day period. But um, I'm, I'm amazed at some of the supernatural activities you, you may have not locked down on. First of all, do you know that um, Jesus appeared after his after his resurrection, ten different times to people. And when he rose from the dead, he would make these sudden frightening appearances and scare everybody in the room. Uh, I really want to get scared like that sometime. I mean, I know I don't like being scared, but it'd probably be worth it. Just uh, how many? I, oh, well, here we go. Another thing that happened was when Jesus was crucified, there was an earthquake. In Jerusalem, so severe, it cracked and broke rocks, but it didn't destroy any of the buildings in town. And the Bible tells us that Roman historians actually write about that earthquake. There was a three-year, I'm sorry, a three-hour period of darkness that's inexplicable. You know, people say, I don't believe that stuff. Well, see, that I do believe that stuff. I love the supernatural. Why, why do we have to explain everything? That messes it all up. It takes the mystery out of it. It's like um, you're only interested in a magician right up until the time you can figure out how he did what he did. And then on to the next thing. But, um, but the veil was torn from the top to the bottom in the temple. And that was no easy feat if you've ever studied how thick that veil was. And, of course, the significance of that was there's no more separation between any man and the very holiest place of God when you go by faith in Christ. The veil has been rent. The door is open. As rank sinners, by faith in the blood of Jesus, we can go headlong, boldly into the holiest of places, into the literal presence of God. That's, you know, until these things are too good to be true, you haven't seen them in their fullness yet. That's one of the things that happened. A three-hour darkness I mentioned. How does that happen? I don't know. I don't know. Here's another another thing that happened was um, some, of the, uh, some of the saints came out of the tombs and appeared to people in the streets of Jerusalem. 
Have you ever read that over in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 27? If you do not have room for the supernatural, you're going to be in real trouble as a Christian. I'm just going to tell you that. Because you can't read this book without going, how could that possibly happen? But that is what the Bible tells us, that the 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 um, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was so cataclysmic, it affected nature. It's as though God himself turned off the lights because of the hideous nature of the murder of his son. Uh, there was a, an incredible earthquake. Uh, the way was opened wide. Actually, if, if you study this, it was through the rending of the flesh of the body of Jesus that the way was made open into the holy place, the holiest place of all, which was represented by uh, that veil between the holy of holies and the um, that other court there in the in the uh, in the temple. Andy and I were talking about uh, Jesus' scars, and I said, "Well, you know, Andy, I don't know if he had scars. I think he had holes." I think, you know, Jesus said what to Thomas? Thomas, come over here and stick your hand into my side. Actually, I had a picture of that, but I thought it was going to freak the kids out too much. But there's um, a, a great Italian artist who painted that. And uh, it was freaking me out a little bit. And uh, so I thought it's probably not going to be good for other people because I can take a pretty good punch. But uh, But the amazing thing was the way the Italian artist... I don't know his name. Let me make one up. Cacaveggio said uh, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> I'm an acquired taste for those of you who are here new this morning. But um, it shows Jesus taking Thomas's hand reluctantly to Jesus' wound, open, healed wound. And, and Thomas won't even look at him. And you know, some of the other remarkable things were this. Uh, Jesus appeared to the women first. You know, some churches don't believe uh, women can be evangelists or have certain aspects of ministry, which I think is utterly ridiculous. Yeah, you like that, didn't you? But um, that was a woman, I'm sure. But if, but the very first evangelists after the resurrection of Jesus were women. And they had a very hard audience. The apostles wouldn't believe them. So, let's do this. I want us to read um, some verses here together. And uh, it'll, it'll be great. We'll have a huge time. And Here we go. Why don't, why don't uh, let's stand up. Sometimes it's good just to honor the written word. 1 Corinthians 15, I have two, the uh, 1 Corinthians passage is on two different slides here, so let's go together. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you... That which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. I think it's very interesting, both times the Gospel writer, which is the Apostle Paul, uses that phrase, according to the Scriptures. I was reading this morning, people that do not believe that the New Testament is accurate don't know the history of the New Testament. Actually, they have discovered recently um, some brand new manuscripts that were written while people were still alive who had seen Jesus personally back in the first century. So a lot of people want to say that the Bible's been corrupted because it takes them off the hook. Therefore, they don't have to believe it. But, okay, verse 4, we read that again. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Simon Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, 
he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Okay, remain standing. We'll just read one more verse here in Acts, or, or three verses. And this was written by Luke, the physician. The former account I made, oh, good job, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Read that phrase, by many infallible proofs. Being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Okay, why don't you have a seat. So the Bible, the New Testament, is really a record of eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And I like that, um, I like that 1 Corinthians where it's a text where it says, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. But some of, uh, this was most likely, it says there's a, a for 40 days, um, he taught the kingdom of God. We saw that in Acts chapter 1, 1 through 3. Uh, and and that's, that's remarkable. So Paul knew these people. And then, of course, on, on the um, Damascus Road, Paul had his own encounter with Jesus. And um, so these, these are eyewitness accounts. Jesus really did ri- arise from the dead. It's remarkable. You know, the thing about the resurrection to me means there's nothing impossible. Um, God requires no cooperation from the person to be resurrected. If you're dead, you can't do much. I can't imagine the dead people trying to strain to be resurrected. Hey, by the way, if I die, leave me alone. I want to, I'd rather, I mean, I love my wife, but... Uh, never mind, let's go on. But um, <laughs> heaven's that wonderful is the point I'm making. And I've, I'm i good, man. If if I, you know, if you've got enough faith to get me back when I don't want to come, I guess that'll be all right because I'm not going to participate. But anyway, Jesus is alive. Many infallible proofs. I just love the fact that God does supernatural things. I love the truth that no matter what shape you're in, what condition you're in, he even does stuff for unrepentant people. I think that's wonderful. He wants you to repent. He wants you to have faith. I've seen him touch people that didn't have an ounce of faith. Somebody in the room somewhere had some. And sometimes that's just, just all it takes. God just loves to, to touch people. But um, he doesn't like being controlled. I found that out. Now, I want to shift gears. I want to talk about... Uh, what a person's worth. And um, I think everybody needs to ask themselves that question. What am I, what's my value? What's my real value? How do I ter- determine my value? And probably uh, maybe five years ago, Donna and I were in Oklahoma, out in the Tulsa area, preaching. And we visited a place called the Gilcrease Museum. And it's one of the country's best facilities for the preservation and study of American art and history. Uh, it has over 100,000 books, manuscripts, documents, maps, some dating back to 1494. That's two years after Christopher Columbus discovered the New World, as they say. Although there were some people already here, they probably didn't think they needed discovering. But anyway... Among many rare and historic documents and paintings, I would, I would, I actually saw handwritten copies, not, not um, photocopies currently made of the original Declaration of Independence that had been signed by Benjamin Franklin along with the Articles of Confederation. In other words, legit handwritten copies 
of the Declaration of Independence is in this place. It was it was really remarkable. I can remember, I mean, between me and that thin sheet of glass, if I could have put my hand on it, I could I could have touched something Benjamin Franklin touched, and that was what 1770, around 1776. So, so I was impressed with what I saw there, but. There was something, um, there was a document there that really affected me more than anything there, no matter how valuable 1494, Declaration of Independence, Articles of Confederation, whatever it was. And it was a two-column invent slaves of the Robert M. Compton estate with age name and their value, Madison County, Tennessee, 1848. And so I was looking looking at that document, and I thought, my goodness, what in the world? A document listing how one person owned another person and the value they put on that person for inventory or... It could have been taxes. I'm, I'm not sure, but there it was. And, and I saw there was a six-year-old boy named Cos, C-O-S, and his value, listen, his value was $275. That's the value that owner placed on that young boy, that young boy's life, Say that, $275. $275. The value one person thought another person had. And then there was another uh, a male, 25-year-old male named Stephen, valued at $650. So Stephen was valued at $650. Think about, think about someone having um, a monetary value on your life. That's all you're worth to them. That's your estimate. That's your value. And if you pay attention to them, that's all you think you're worth. Then there was a young lady named um, Sylvia. Uh, she was she was valued at four hundred and twenty-five dollars. So you had a little boy at two seventy-five, a man at six fifty, and a young woman at four hundred twenty-five dollars. Well, I was, you know, this was really, you know, this was really affecting me because I, you know, um, you have to know your value to help you establish your identity. And until you can do that, you can't really fulfill your, your destiny. Because you, you live up to the value you, in the depths of your heart, you believe you have. And really, you will, if you go beyond that, you'll probably back up and think, well, I'm not worthy to, this is too good, or it's, it's a psychological thing. Now, here's, here's the heartbreaker. The most heartbreaking record of all was this one. And this is exactly what it said. Old Ben... Age 65, no value, dash zero. No value. This is terrible. The difference between how people value people and how God values people is, is a person worth. How much is a person worth? Well, let me let me shift gears again. Let me talk about uh, determining value. What's something worth? Well, to determine an ob- object's value is an important process, and is determined determined rather by a number of factors: rarity, condition, potential for increase, place in history, authenticity 
And the last one is the price someone's willing to pay. That's how you determine an object's value. I meant to get this, but the Hope Diamond can't, can't be, um, it, it can't be any larger than, um, I don't know, a large, large grape or I don't know a good, you know, but it's worth millions and millions and it just takes up so little space. But it's one of the largest diamonds ever discovered and its purity and its rarity um, increases its value. It, 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 when people know the facts behind it, they will pay astronomical prices because, and that price determines what one, the, the, the amount somebody's willing to pay for that diamond determines its real world value. Well, I was, um, I ran across a picture of how many, how many baseball fans? How many know who Willie Mays is? Old, old folks do, young folks don't, but, um, Willie Mays is arguably one of the, Greatest baseball players ever. And um, in 1951, his first season, he played for the Minneapolis Millers. He basically spent the majority of, time of his life playing for uh, the New York Giants, which became the San Francisco Giants. Then he was with the Mets for a while. But he started out on a minor league team called the Minneapolis Millers. And um, a fella came across what he thought was his uniform jersey, and he bought it for 50 bucks. But the problem with sport I'm going somewhere. It's okay. The, pro the problem with sports memorabilia is proving its authenticity because anybody could write Mickey Mantle's name on a baseball and say, pay me $450, and it wasn't really Mickey Mantle's signature. So it's this whole idea between is it authentic? Is this the one and only? Is this the legit? And so this guy paid $50 for this jersey and later found a photograph of it with Willie Mays wearing it. I think I have it right here since you asked. And in that photograph, it shows that tear in his right sleeve, which is the exact tear on the right sleeve of the jersey this guy paid $50 for, which now, because of this authenticity and this rarity, and its future potential for value is now worth between $60,000 and $80,000. It's pretty incredible. It's just a piece of flannel with numbers on it. No, Willie Mays wore that. Oh, no, he didn't wear it. Yeah, he did. See that picture with Willie wearing it? It's got the same tear exactly that I've got right here. This thing is worth money. It's rare. It's valuable. It's desirable. It's authentic. It increases in value. Okay. So that's what collectors are willing to pay for it. Now, that leads us to this very obvious question. What are we worth? Yeah, really, what's our value? What are we worth? You know, when you talk about what you're worth, you're really talking about who, who you really are. Who am I? And um, in every way we could come up with telling people how much God loved them. Because until you get that on board, you're a, you're a Christian look, accident looking for a place to happen. I mean, and, and the problem is I was preaching before I really had a profound knowledge of how much God loved me. If you would have asked me the question, I could have gotten it right. Robin, do you know that God loves you? Yes. I could answer that question right. But there were gaps and holes in the way I lived life, the way I related to people, the way I related to the Lord, that would indicate I didn't know that profoundly enough because it really affects who you are. It affects how you view other people. It affects how you communicate. It affects how quickly you get aggravated. It affects how quickly you forgive people. It affects how quickly you can forgive yourself. 
And so I've had a, I've had a, a series of encounters over the years. I've been saved, I don't know, going on 45 years. And the problem with when I tell my testimonies, it comes across as like this greatest hits thing. Like things like this happen to me every day. But see, the problem with God is he takes his time. If you say you've tried God and it didn't work, you didn't try him long enough. He might have been trying you to see what you believed. You have to, you have to give him time to prove himself. And you've got to be able to weather them. What they say. How much they think you're worth as opposed to what he thinks about you. And, and those things have to have, they have to have shoes and walk around. In other words, it's got to be real enough that when you get into situations, the love of God is so profound to you and it's so touched you so deeply that it affects how you live. So what are we worth? Well, we saw they said Ben wasn't worth anything. I hope Ben didn't believe that. I think Sylvia's worth $425 and Stephen $650. He was probably proud that he was worth more than Sylvia, almost more than Sylvia and that little boy together. I don't know. But what are you worth? How many of you ever looked at the map of the Milky Way, which is one of a billion galaxies? How many of you have looked at that? And if you look at it, if you put your finger about right here, relatively speaking, that's where we live, in there somewhere, in that white area there. And it's so white because there's so many stars like our sun that we can't really see the planet or it's just white because there's so many. And that's one. Um, they're not like a billion stars. They're like a billion galaxies of a billion stars. Now, I don't know if this is true. Everybody is pulling for E.T. and UFOs and all that stuff. But And maybe there are people on other planets. I don't know. Here's one thing I know. Um, people talk about time travel. How many of you are interested in time travel? Well, let me just tell you this. Nobody will ever travel through time. Let me tell you why. If they did, they would have been back here by now. I'm th I hope that messes with you. We think, of course, that couldn't be true because we haven't lived that long. Well, that's the deal. I mean, it would be true for whoever that time traveler came back to. Okay, never mind. But I'll be smart. I'm not sure. But um, so if, if what if we were the only inhabited planet in the entire universe? How much would one person be worth relative to everything else out there? It'd be, it'd be incredible. Your value, just on that level. Well, here's how our value has been established. Our value has been established by what God was willing to pay for us, which was his son, his only son, and the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body. I can remember on John Mark's 22nd birthday. I don't know why it happened on that birthday, but I remember that night I was, I was in a habit of waking up in the night and I'd, and, um, I'd stay awake for about an hour or so. And I didn't really want to be awake, so I was trying to figure out why I was awake. And so I'd pray. It's a pretty good idea. But at, but a given point in that season, I began to think about um, how Jesus had been treated when he came. You know, the Bible tells you this. Um, he came unto his own, 
and his own received him not. Now, what that literally means is he came not just to Jewish people, and Jewish people didn't, didn't receive him. He came to the humanity he himself had created according to the word. And what he had created, what he had established, what he had built, what he had made, said, we don't want you. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Then it says, but then, to as many as received Jesus, as many as received him, to them he gave the most remarkable right you could have. It's the right to become authority, to become a child of God, to as many as believed on his name. And so it is huge. Listen, Jesus has a rejection complex. The easiest way to get on Jesus' good side, and I think that's every side, but the easiest way to get on Jesus' good side is to receive him. Take him as he is. Actually express this level of faith. Lord, there are things I don't know about you. There are things that may happen that you're responsible for that I'm not going to like, but I'm in. I receive you 100%, no matter what, for what that's worth. I'm throwing in my lot. I receive you. I really like that. That to me is what humility is. Here's what humility is. When you're messed up, it's your fault. That's it's that easy. You just don't know you're messed you, you don't know it's your fault. But anytime you lose your temper, you get out of sorts, it's your fault. Well, so-and-so did something. Yeah, but you responded to so-and-so something, and the way you feel now is your fault. Yeah, but I don't see it that way. Well, that would be the point. That would be the point. How do you get out of that? Admit you're wrong before you see you're wrong, and you'll see where you are wrong, and you can get out of that mess. That is the most profound thing I may have said in the last ten minutes. That's what humility is. Admit it up front, and you'll see it. Oh, that's so good, Robin. You're so amazed. Thank you, Robin. Please, no worship. Just simple appreciation will do. Now, what are you worth? How highly do you value yourself? Are you worthy of being ransomed? A ransom for many. Are you worthy of being redeemed? Now, I'm going way back. This is when I was a kid. When you go to the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, that was the A&P food store at Park Road Shopping Center, they would give you green stamps based on how big your food bill was. Well, what are green stamps? They're these stamps that you would put in this redemption book. You'd, they'd had, you'd lick them and stick them in there. And then when you got three books, you could go down to the Green Stamp Redemption Center and redeem a toaster. And that's how they got you to buy groceries there. That was one of the deals. In other words, for something to be redeemed, it's got to be bought. For something to be ransomed, it's got to be bought back. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You were redeemed. That's First Peter 1, Acts 20. Therefore, take heed to yourselves to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. Which would that be? The one which he purchased with his own blood. You, you, according to the Bible, you've been redeemed. You've been ransomed. When someone is kidnapped, what do the kidnappers want? They want value paid for the person, for you to get the person back alive. It's a price paid. That's what Jesus did. He paid a price. He purchased us with his own blood. 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20, and this is the interesting thing. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You do not own yourself. Isn't that shocking? 
You think you do. You act like you do. You may live like you do until how you live gets you in such a big mess, you go ask God to help you get out of it. How many of you know that life? Come on. Yeah. And he does gladly. But what he wants you to realize is you're not your own. That's your problem. You think you are. I can go where I want to go. I can do what I want to do anytime I want to. Yeah, yeah. until you get diabetes or you... You know, you've got arth- you know what I'm saying, until something happens and you suddenly realize, how does this really work? You're not your own. Jesus paid a high price for you. That's what lordship is. Mm. You're not your own. He bought you at a price. Watchman Knee. How many of you ever heard of Watchman Knee? Yeah, sit, walk, stand, the normal Christian life. Some of the best Christian books out there that are a little bit older than this generation may have read, but he wrote this. If I want to understand the value of the blood, not know something of the value set upon, I must accept God's valuation of it. And if I do not know something of the value set upon the blood by God, I shall never know what its value is for me. It's only as the estimate that God puts upon the blood of Christ is made known to me by his Holy Spirit that I can come into the good of it myself and find how precious indeed the blood is to me. Now, the blood represents the price Jesus paid so that you can freely go to heaven. You go for free, but he paid. His broken body is the price Jesus paid to give you the right to be healed. That's the price Jesus paid. So the value in those two senses is this. It's the only thing in all creation that could get completely, totally wicked people who deserved judgment and condemnation into the very presence of God in a place where God could demonstrate to them how happy he had always been, but how unreconciled they had been in their lives because of their Sin nature. One thing, the blood of Jesus. One thing in all the cosmos. The valuable life blood Jesus shed on the cross on the behalf of the world. It redeems us from eternal judgment. Only the blood of Jesus and nothing else. It washes us from all our sin. Only the blood of Jesus and nothing else. It purifies our conscience. It reconciled us to God. It brought us lasting peace. It bought us back, ransomed us back, justified us, saved us from wrath, brings us near to God, gives us access to the Holy of Holies, And overcomes our accuser, Satan. It's the blood of Jesus and nothing else. That's it. It does all those things. What does that mean? That's your value. That's your value. What value, really? What value do you think you have? This is what C.S. Lewis said. Jesus died not for men, but for each man. If each man had been the only man made, he would have done no less. Have you determined your value the same way the Lord did? It'll change your life. That's how your life changes. Your belief structure changes. That's how it changes. It's a faith-based change. C.S. Lewis, as wise as he was, says Jesus didn't come to die for people. He came to die for every person. If you'd been the only person, he would have done that same thing. For you, for one person. That's how much you're worth. I was talking to this retired college professor 
from um, Winthrop. He's a brilliant man, and he loves me. He has never met anybody like me. I'm serious. I'm not. I'm just, I have high value on his value of who I am. So that's how your life starts changing. So he, um, he says, how are you doing today? And I said, Jim, the most remarkable thing. He said, what? I said, I have discovered I'm God's favorite person. And he laughed involuntarily out loud. He said, you're the craziest person I've ever met in my life. And I said, well, here's the problem, Jim. He feels that way about every single person. Value. Value. He values each person as though you're the only one and the most his favorite. One morning as I was waking up, the Lord spoke to me in that sort of quiet way. And this is what he said. He said, each one of my children is my own personal favorite. And I thought, isn't that wonderful? And then he said, but very few of them believe it. Very few. I heard a rumor today that God's favorite person was coming to church this morning. Is that true? Are you out there? I heard that. Where are you? God's favorite person. Are you willing to say that about yourself? Well, you don't know me. You don't know me. You know the public persona. You don't know me. Is God's favorite person here this morning? What if God's favorite person was living in sin and was in a mess? Well, if they found out they were God's favorite person, I think things might change. If they found out that everybody else in here is just probably as rotten as you are, they just covered up better or they've gotten over some of that stuff. I don't know how it works, but uh, yeah, God's favorite person could be here this morning. You could have come in, another person, you can walk out, God's favorite person. That's the way he feels about you. He values you. He gave everything he had. What John Mark said this morning just touched me so profoundly. God doesn't give us answers to why did this happen? Why did that happen? You know, sometimes he does, some, a lot of times he really doesn't. He just says, here, I'll give you myself. Here. You think you've had it bad? Look at the way I died. Actually, that's what happened in the night. I didn't get to it. I was praying in the night, Lord, I'm so sorry for the way you were treated when you were here. I prayed it and prayed it and prayed it. I could not stop praying that, which was sort of stupid. I got to feel like a Roman Catholic priest or something. It was weird. But I just kept praying it because I kept feeling it. And suddenly, on John Mark's 22nd birthday, middle of the night, I had a vision of Jesus being scourged. His hands were tied. He was completely naked. And they were hitting him with this whip. And you know you can read about those whips. They had glass, metal embedded in them. And they would come around your back. And then they would dig into your skin. And then they would just rip. They would just rip your flesh off. And what they did was they tried to beat you until you're almost dead. So you would die in a hurry on the cross. So the Roman soldiers could enjoy the rest of their weekends. What it amounted to. So they wanted you as dead as possible before you were dead feet like some kind of a wild animal that was being beat. I saw this. The passion of the Christ, I saw that, was not as graphic as the vision I had that night. I saw, and later I thought, who, who, shows, who shows another person in grave detail, great detail, who they are in their most humiliating possible moment? You with me? Someone that loves you so much, he wants you to know what he's done for you. See, that's who Jesus is. He wants you to know what he's done for you. They say that sometimes in those scourgings, um, your flesh would be so ripped out that your bowels would just fall out. It was gruesome. You know, they say Jesus was whipped with 39 
lashes and 39. They didn't hit you with 40 because 40 would probably kill you. And, and by his stripes were healed and 39 lashes, 39 stripes. Listen, those were Romans. They weren't doing anything Jewish when they were beating up Jesus. Trust me. There was one stripe. And really, when you read First Peter, it says, By whose stripe you were healed, because he was so beaten, you could not distinguish one stripe from another. It was an open, horrible, torn, broken, hideous, deformed Jesus who bore in his body and paid the price for us to be free. That's who he is. That's who he was. And that's what he did. How do we know it worked? Because God raised him from the dead. That's why. And he's here right now by the power of the Spirit. He's here right now listening to your thoughts. He's here right now hoping you understand how much. And knowing if you do how much he really cares about you and loves you. He loves you profoundly. He loves you deeply. He paid his ultimate price for you. So, okay. The tomb's empty, ladies and gentlemen. He's alive. He's alive. Amen, amen. Okay. All right. Everybody all right? Yes. How wonderful is Jesus. I love, Who loves Jesus this morning? I hope you love him a little bit more. Come on. Loving Jesus is what it's all about. Jesus, you're awesome. Thank you, Jesus. I just want to say this, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done. We don't fully grasp it. But we want to more and more. But we love you. Lord Jesus, listen to us. We love you this morning. You're so good. All these years, you've followed us around, gotten us out of trouble, gotten us into some we'd have never gotten into, too, I'm sure. But, Lord, thank you so much you love us. Thank you that you died for us, that your precious blood was shed for us, not just for me, but for my whole family. Lord, we claim our whole families this morning because you said we could. You and your whole household. So, Father, bless us this day in the wonderful name of Jesus. Hey. (laughs) Things are liable to get out of control here in a minute. But we do have ministry teams after whatever's at the end, and we would love to pray for you. How many of you? I just love John Mark. Look at him. Come on.